loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Rachel Michael Bird. Excuse me, Michael Berg. Rachel grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and still enjoys living there with her husband, Richard, and their two dogs, Nala and Beanie. She earned her Bachelor of Music degree in vocal performance from San Jose University and has performed leading roles in musicals and opera from Carmen to My Fair Lady, as well as the part of the Mother Abbess three times in The Sound of Music. When Rachel isn't working with one of her 20 voice and piano students, she loves gardening, hiking, and baking sourdough bread. Crash, How I Became a Reluctant Caregiver is her first book. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to have you. I feel we're, we're going to launch into such an important subject today, which uh, I would I would broadly say is... Um, finding ways in caregiving to figure out what's right for us and and stand up to the guilt if it's not going to be every single thing. Um, so I'm really happy to bring that voice to the show. Yeah, it's, it's such an important subject that doesn't get discussed that often, um, particularly the ambivalence around caregiving. Uh, just because of the expectations that society places on us to to perform that role, uh, and maybe this is somewhat gendered. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> We've Abs- got to put that in there, don't absolutely. we? Absolutely. <laughs> no question about that. No question about that. So let's let's start with what happened. Um, maybe you can share. What, where thing, you know, they say that trauma finds us where we live, like we're just, <laughs> we're just having our life and then it, it drops into the middle of, of what's already going on for better or worse and all of that. Can you talk about the moment of your own trauma and where you were at before that and then a little bit wh- what happened from then on? Yeah, sure. Um, so my husband David and I had been married almost 10 years, had um, two children at the time, ages six and seven, uh, when um, the small plane that he was flying in uh, crashed into a vineyard in the central coast of California. Um, both both men, the pilot and David, um, survived miraculously, uh, but David sustained a very severe traumatic brain injury as well as other, both, both suffered other injuries back internal. Um, but the, you know, of course the, the main and, and, and more, um, permanent one was, was David's brain injury. Uh, and, um, it happened at a time when our marriage had been, uh, struggling. We, we were having some difficulties in our marriage had started counseling and, um, and I was 
starting to develop feelings for someone else, but I was fighting that urge very strongly, but still suddenly David more or less fell out of the sky. And this, um, this injury was so profound. And uh, I was told early on, there probably would never be any kind of full recovery that um, our lives changed so dramatically and traumatically. Um, And uh, suddenly I was thrust into this role of, with the, the potential of a lifetime of caregiving for uh, what the time he was 40, 44, 45, I can't remember. Um, But for caring for him and our two children. um, And at the time he was, after the accident, he, he had, um, was having seizures. He was incontinent. um, He had outbursts. uh, It was just he was like a child, but there were, wasn't really going to be much hope of him uh, improving. You know, like children, <laughs> children grow up, right, and they um, they mature and so on. But um, it it and just they looked, do, and they have smaller bodies and they have smaller bodies. <laughs> you right? know, just and, na- navigating. Uh, my wife was quite large, so I know what it's like to navigate a body mm-hmm. that isn't working. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. Yeah. And, you know, they don't have expectations about, um, like, I, I remember at one point, and I, I talk about this in the book a bit, how he, um, he, he, had, he, he had used to come to visit us, uh, he was brought over from the facility where he was living. And um, when I turned my back, he, he had taken the car keys and started to drive down the street, which was incredibly dangerous because he really wasn't able to function cognitively in a way that he could drive safely at all. Um, luckily my neighbor saw him and stopped him and so on, but you know, that's the kind of thing that I knew I might have to live with. Had he lived with you, you would have been under a constant threat because he was unpredictable. Very unpredictable, very impulsive. And of course that what kind of atmosphere that creates around the children, um, is, I just didn't believe it was healthy for them as well. So um, the book is about my, you know, exploring that guilt in coming to terms with that realization of um, that, that I just wasn't capable. Um, And I, I, when I, when I imagined my life being his care, his caregiver, I, I sort of, um, I, I felt such a dread in, and such an anxiety that I almost couldn't function. So just even the thought of it. So that, you know, and I would, you know, cry my way through every therapy appointment with, with the, because those feelings were so raw and so real. And so mm-hmm. luckily I had amazing professionals, therapists, social workers, um, and the professionals that were taking care of him who were advising me and supporting me in in questioning that decision whether or not you know i was going to be become his permanent caregiver one thing that that stood out in my own mind even though not in your writing but i I felt it was behind you know i've i've known couples who are struggling and then one of them gets hurt or sick or whatever and um there's a sort of heart opening sometimes and so 
because that didn't happen, I'm thinking your relationship was kind of over. Like <laughs> you were working on it, but it doesn't seem as if that connection was was there for you any longer. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not true, but that's what came to my mind. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It it had really been suffering for a while, and um, at the time, the timing of the of this accident, and the incident was such that I think those that connection had been had been broken. Uh, and so any kind of rev revival of the relationship that I wanted to attempt, he, he, you know, he, he wasn't himself anymore, even, even right. if, <laughs> right. Yeah. Even if you had been inclined. Yeah. It, it, even, yeah. It, you know, as, as we talked about briefly before the show, um, you know, I, I often question myself and my, my, my daughter asked me as well, you know, would you have still been married to dad if, if he hadn't had the accident, um, I say probably not, but even if our relationship had been strong at the time that it happened, um, his change was so profound. He, he just, he became, you know, as I, as I mentioned, like a, a completely dependent, willful, impulsive toddler, you know? Yes. And, and lost, <clears throat> it would appear to me, lost his ability to actually be a good parent, which he didn't kind of have going for him before. Uh, it seemed like he was there for your kids. And yes, he was a great dad. Um, right. But so yeah. so um, that was also gone, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 More than gone. It was, it was um, you know, he would lash out at them sometimes or um, mm -hmm. he just didn't have, I mean, you know, perfectly psychonormal people lash out at their kids. I certainly did. Um, it's just that um, it wasn't, I just didn't think it was a healthy environment. And it's very hard to explain to a kid, you know, especially when um, David, my husband couldn't, he didn't really understand apology or um, being regret, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you were the one that carried all kinds of guilt. Yeah. He didn't seem to. <laughs> let's no, let's no. share a little bit from the book from that early time because I think it kind of capture captures your your um, internal conflict about how to handle the situation. Would you share some? Yes, absolutely. So this scene um, is taking place just a few, I think it's the day after, or perhaps two days after um, the, the plane crash um, when I had, um, and we were in the ICU and the doctor had, David had just uh, undergone facial reconstruction surgery. And uh, I'm wondering what the future is going to look like. What will my lawfully wedded husband look like? Not the attractive man I promised to stand by in sickness and in health. How shallow. Just be grateful he's alive. Try to be grateful he's alive. Commotion in the ICU. A gurney is pushed past me. I hold back a bit, waiting for the orderlies to transfer him. On my count, one, two, three, and hook him up to the machines surrounding his bed, a forest of ominously beeping trees. I make my way to the bedside tentatively. There is one nurse left, checking monitors, the respirator, IVs, fluid levels. 
I'm afraid to touch him. He can't hear me, right? She smiles. Not really, but you should talk to him anyway. We think it helps with the healing. Healing? That seems like a pretty far-fetched idea. David looks about the same as he did last night, except the bloody bandages have been replaced with clean ones. Barely recognizable. So much swelling. So many tubes. Will it be months? Years? Ever? Even if he survives, who will my husband be? Who will I be? I'm not a natural caretaker like David's mother, Maria, or his sister, Dora. How can I possibly become David's nursemaid? I stroke David's hand, trying to avoid the oxygen monitor on his index finger. His skin is dry, papery. I should bring some of that nice lavender hand cream from home. Wait, he doesn't care. Hell, he may not even wake up. Oh, David, I sigh, forcing myself to really study him. Please don't die. I say these words dutifully, but somewhere in the most shameful, monstrous depths of my being, I know I don't fully mean them. I feel as if you're, you were not only up against that internal conflict, you were also up against society's judgments on what caregiving should look like. And I've got to tell you that most people that I work with in caregiving situations, regardless of what they're doing or not doing, um, carry incredible guilt, which is such a load to bear. Uh, you know, you were doing so much, actually, uh, all from then on, so much. And yet the things you were not willing or able or um, did not choose to do, such a load of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe part of that is because I'm Jewish and that's just part of my DNA, but, but I don't I, know. No, I've I'm, seen that in all cultures. I know. I know. I was just, I was just kidding, but um, it's absolutely true. I think that there's, um, there's this, this voice that whether it, you know, it usually comes from without that tells us, you know, um, this is how you're supposed to act and this is what you're supposed to do. And even if you are, and, and I, cause I've talked to people uh, that are full-time caregivers and they, they are like, I just, I feel like I can't do enough. I feel, I feel guilty that I have resentment toward this role. I, um, it's, it's kind of a no-win situation. It, it really, really is. I, you know, I have all these points of gratitude from my own circumstance and, I, and I'm not saying I didn't work incredibly hard as a caregiver, but my wife would not let me do it all. Mm. She, she absolutely, she's like, nope, you, you're the only wife in this situation. You will not do it all. We're going to use every reason, you know, mm -hmm. and I think I would have tried given who I was at that time. I think I would have tried or felt bad that I couldn't mm -hmm. uh, one or the other. So it's really, uh, you know, they say caregivers are twice as likely to get depressed as the person they're caring for. Mm. And, and I, I know why. It's not just the hard work. It's the lack of recognition and the mm -hmm. load of guilt and the way people never think you're doing it well enough. And just the whole um, people trying to control how you do it, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll get into that uh, you know, next, next segment, how people tried to control the way you did it. Uh, that complicates things, doesn't it? Mm. 
It does, especially when you know that they have good intentions. Um, and we can talk about that some more, but um, you know, people have different ideas about what the scenario should look like and um, they're not always the same. That's for and, sure. And uh, people don't maybe want to recognize what you're struggling with um, because it's scary. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, if they imagine that it's just something you do and it's, it works okay and all that, uh, they don't have to face up to the fact of how vulnerable we are and how, how badly things can go, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel that's a part of it? Oh, absolutely. I think that people project their own guilt onto you um, or into each other. Uh, in my case, I know we have a break coming up, but uh, in my case, um, my husband's sister, Dora, was um, really trying to do the best for him, but her methods of doing that were not very supportive of me in the end. Um, but I, you know, I believe that she felt guilty that she couldn't do more. Um, she lived abroad, you know, lived in Israel, lives currently. Um, and uh, I think that, so she was projecting, I think, some of her feelings onto me, which is understandable, but painful and difficult. And, and hard to, hard to navigate. Oh. Disruptive, to, you know, then it's not just the one problem it's it's many subsequent problems let's let's come back to that in a minute listeners you can find links to my web, website and social media at the good grief page at voice america and to find rachel michael bird you can go to rachel michael berg it's spelled m-i-c-h-e-l-b-e-r-g author.com be back soon Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Rachel Michaelberg about her book, Crash. And Rachel, we were just starting to talk a bit about um about the people in yours and david's in your family's life who had strong opinions about what you ought to do and i would say pretty shockingly tried to um exert their will on your choices um can you talk a bit about what that was like because mm-hmm. um I didn't get the impression from the book, for instance, that your I got the impression that your relationship with your sister-in-law, for instance, was good before this. Oh, it was great. Um, we we just had the best time together. Even though she, <laughs> we are in California and she lived in Israel, um, we had David was very close with his brother and sister as much as he could be, even though his brother was in Germany, sister in Israel, him, him in California. Um, and especially as technology got better and better and they were able to, I don't think we had FaceTime at the time, but, uh, it was, uh, they were very close. And then I became very close with Dora because we visited there. She visited us, sent her, her kids to stay with us during the summers. Um, and so, I think in, in a way that made the, the rift even, well, not in a way, definitely made it even more painful because, um, I really felt the loss of her, of her friendship and her love. Um, And also a disappointment of expectation, because when you're close to someone like that, you, you expect them to try to understand things from your point of view. Right. And, and, and I, I think she tried to, but she, what she was so single focused on, on getting David out of the facility where, um, where he was living that it was, she pulled out all the stops. And even if it was, um, not a legally or medically a wise decision to do that, she wanted that to happen. And so she had a bit of a blindness, uh, <laughs> I'd say those blinders on about that. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty devastating. I'm happy to say that now um, we have a friendly relationship, nothing like it was before. But um, you know, David is still alive, and she, um, they, the kids during pre-pandemic times, they they went to visit him a couple times a year, uh, and so 
but, but our relationship has never really recovered and that's kind of to be expected very, but so, you know, this, this kind of trauma causes rifts and, and losses and, um, grief in all kinds of areas, not just. Absolutely. Including, you know, being a single parent in a diff in a very difficult situation. Yes. Um, you know, that's, that's an added uh, trying to translate what was happening to David to your kids in a way that they could understand given their, given their ages. Um, that, that had to be a big task as well. It was, it was one of the hardest things was trying to keep my kids life as normal as possible and to keep their, to, there couldn't be any kind of a maintenance of the relationship that they'd had with him previously because he was so changed. And of course they were changing and growing, but I wanted them to have some kind of relationship with him, you know, to have, to look forward to seeing him, to not be afraid to visit him, you know, in the place where he was staying. Um, It was, it was very hard. And I, I have to say, I, um, I felt as if it was a bit life threatening to you. Um, I, I hope you'll share um, the part of the book where you started really coming to terms with the fact that you couldn't do it. Um, but I felt you were pushed over that edge because of the risk to your own health. Um, yes. You know, and uh, maybe you can share that part of the book and then we can talk more about that. Yes, yes, that's a great segue. Um, so about five weeks after the accident, I actually had um, a very, very severe medical issue, uh, an abdominal infection that um, put me in the hospital for 10 days. Um, so David was in one hospital, I was in another one, and the kids were being shuffled around from, uh, to my family, friends and so on. And, um, I, I was also an old eating disorder that I had in college had, um, had, had recurred because of all of this trauma and stress. And so, um, I'd lost an enormous amount of weight had been just very drained from being in the hospital. And, uh, in fact, David was supposed to come home. At this point, I absolutely fully intended to bring him home and be his caregiver no matter what uh, at this point. But um, as I mentioned before, I had this heroic, I call her my hero, a social worker who was assigned to our case who was meeting with me um, at this point in the story just the day after that I'd been released from the hospital. Um, and um, we were going to discuss the options. Her name is Lois. I turned down Lois's offer of a soda from the vending machine. We're having a where are we now and what's next meeting on an outdoor terrace at Valley Med. The fog's lifted. It's a lovely California early summer morning. She pulls two metal chairs under the shade of an umbrella, leans back to steady me, shakes her head and sighs. My God, Rachel, you've had a rough time. How are you feeling now? Her genuine concern for me is surprising, disconcerting. Until now, we'd only discussed David's condition, David's needs. 
I don't answer right away, shifting uncomfortably as the bones of my ass dig into the unforgiving metal chair. Lois's eyes reflect the gaunt, skeletal creature in front of her. Still pretty weak, I admit. The doctors say that for every day you spend in the hospital, it takes about 10 days to fully recover. Where is she going with this? You were there for nine days? Figure two to three months to get back to normal. I see her steal a glance at my bony arms, IV, bruises, dull hair. You need to take care of yourself. I look at my left arm, clutch it protectively. Take care of myself? How exactly? With my copious free time and excess millions of dollars? How the hell am I supposed to do that while caring for two kids and an impulsive, incontinent, seizure-prone, grown man? Yeah, that is so not going to happen. My sad little life is over. Lois's focus is laser blatant. There is another option. I have options? My creative imagination was stolen from the bag I put my clothes in at the ER. David doesn't have to come home. I almost laugh out loud. Seriously? I couldn't do that. What kind of a monster would refuse to care for her disabled husband? Not me, not a nice Jewish girl like me. I do the right thing. I fill the postman's bag with groceries, buy unneeded gift wrap from the neighbor's kid, recycle. I will take care of my brain-injured husband no matter how unhappy I've been in our marriage. There's a facility in Gilroy called Learning Services. It's out in the country, kind of like a ranch. It's run by a lovely person, Dr. Jill Weingardner. She's Jewish, I think. Lois studies me. She looks like you. I think you'd really like her. It shouldn't have been reassuring that the director is Jewish, but it is. Lois is throwing me a lifeline, but all I can think about is Dr. Weingardner and I comparing matzo ball super recipes. Lois opens a folder. A brochure slides across the table. She's been preparing for this conversation. She's been tracking my reality. I haven't been alone. They have a day program as well as live-in, but I'd recommend that David start with a few months in residence. So gentle, but so firm. But she holds up her hand. Just so you can regain your strength. I allow myself to glance at the brochure, but quickly avert my eyes from that gateway to moral depravity. Yet something shifts. In an instant, I know I'm dangerously capable of considering her suggestion. This can work. No, it can't. David can't go into an institution. Crazy people go into institutions, put there by selfish relatives who can't handle a little extra work. I can see the evil twin peeking from behind the curtain. Stage left, the twin who would protest, what about me? What about my life, my needs, my happiness? Don't I matter? Lois watches me wavering. She seizes her chance. Your kids are so young. They're traumatized too. They need a lot of support. The demands on you are going to be enormous. It would be insanely difficult in the best of circumstances, but you're weak and drained. You have no idea how often I've seen perfectly healthy caretakers implode from the stress. She moves in for the kill. If you can't do it for yourself or David, do it for Hannah and Joshi. My sore ass is forgotten. I lean forward. Tell me more about learning services. There's so much, Rachel, in that, in that scene because 
the fact that you didn't know that she was tracking you, uh, I feel that's so common, right? Mm -hmm. That everyone is, is worried about the, even from the caregiver's point of view, everyone's worried about the person who's on, who's had the injury or the illness or whatever. Uh, I'm remembering once I, I ran into a friend on the street and her, her, um, her wife had a debilitating um, pain condition. And I asked about her, how she was doing. And then I said, and how are you doing? And she mm. burst into tears mm, mm -hmm. because nobody was asking how she was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just so, I mean, I tend to, because I was that person. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, well, and you're I also know, a therapist, I know, right? <laughs> but, but I think it's more having had that experience of, um, you know, knowing that I could really slide down if I didn't figure out ways to take care of myself. Yeah, and I had I had some direct experiences where I actually injured myself because I wasn't careful enough because I was busy moving wheelchairs. And, you know, um, it, it was pretty visceral lessons that came about during that time. Yeah. And, um, you know, even even when I allowed myself to consider, even for that moment, that that there were there was another option, and it, in, in my mind at that time it was just temporary. That's how I allowed myself to go there. Um, you know what really did it, as you just heard in, in the excerpt, what really allowed me to consider it was was she said, well, if you don't if you can't do it for yourself, do it for your kids. <laughs> And that sort of gave that's, me the permission. That's often the door in, I notice. Right. You know, people who are natural, you say you're not much of a caregiver, but you are because you had all those ideas inside of yourself that you ought to be doing this, that, and the other. And what turned the corner for you was that it was for the good of someone else. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I suppose so. Um, it's just... Um, you know, the fact that the fact that he did go to a residential facility and then never, well, he, he stayed there until the lawsuits were settled. That was about four years later. Um, I still, and even though I was taking care of so many of his needs, not necessarily the giving him the medications and the getting him to the bathroom and then getting him showered, but the, all of the other legal things and taking care of his kids and taking care of our house and, and dealing with all the therapists, the, the occupational therapist and the physical therapist and the social workers. And, you know, it, it just, um, it was a lot. It was, and it was, it was really all I could do. I couldn't do the other. I have to say that given the circumstance you describe, I'm not even sure that it would have been the best for him. Yeah, I, I tell myself that. <laughs> you don't sound convinced. <laughs> <laughs> not entirely. No, I'm not convinced. But um... I mean, there was no best, right? I yeah. guess we, we'd have to say there's no there's no best when you're, you know, he was injured enough to not be able to take care of himself, to need to be managed, but not so injured that he had no feelings about not being home. 
Right. That's, that's the impression I got anyway, that that he or maybe it was more feelings about being where he was, not wanting to be there. But um, he was not relieved of that inside of himself. No, so. it was kind of the worst of both worlds. There was definitely an awareness, although it wasn't the kind of awareness that you or I would have. Um, the, the, so the injury, uh, was, so let me just back up just a tiny bit to explain, uh, why most people don't survive plane crashes, right? It's just absolutely not, but, um, they were in an older plane that didn't have shoulder harnesses. Um, and it didn't have to, because it was built in the sixties and it was a, it was an old law, but, um, um, and they thought they were, they knew they were having engine trouble and they thought they were making an emergency landing into a field, but it was a vineyard. And so that's why they were actually fairly close to the ground when they, when they crashed. Um, and so their, their heads were thrown forward against the instrument panel. Um, the pilot was, um, he was fully conscious. He didn't have any kind of, I think he had a concussion, but he didn't have the severity of the damage that, that David did. And it's, and it's, it, it split open his skull from basically the, the, the tip of his, um, net, the crown of his nose up to the top of his skull. And so that's the frontal lobe of the brain, um, which these are all, <laughs> I learned, I, I became a medical expert and a legal expert. Yeah. Um, but the frontal lobe is, is responsible, you know, but, um, for our listeners, the fr- frontal lobe is responsible for reasoning, uh, impulse control, um, emotion. Um, I'm sure there are several that I'm missing, um, but just making it sort of executive regulation. Yeah. Regulation. So as as I said, impulse control and, um, filtering, like, you know, you and I are constantly, well, most adults are hopefully filtering (laughs) what comes out of their mouth. If something appears in their brain. Um, but when the, the circuits, the connecting circuits, synapses in the brain are so damaged, they can't connect correctly. And so they, um, there's random stuff that comes out. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of upsetting to be around if you don't, if you're not clear about what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I know also brains are plastic. I, I imagine there was a period where there was improvement, but then at a certain point you don't see much improvement anymore. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly how it happened. Let's take another break and we'll come back to that. And listeners, you can go to my, my website. That, that is weatheringrief.com and the Good Grief Host page. And you can find Rachel Michaelberg at rachelmichaelbergauthor.com. Back soon. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp, 
com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Rachel Michael Burke about her book, Crash. And... Um, you know, I think I think Rachel head injury is a particularly difficult um, reason to become a caregiver because of some of the things you're talking about of, you know, the person, I, I guess I guess it it shares commonality with dementia in a way. You know, the person is not who you knew uh, any longer. they're they're almost a different person. That person has died, even though the body hasn't died. Um, Did you look at it that way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm not putting any kind of judgment on which of these situations is, is worse or more difficult. I think it's all just horrible and traumatic. But with dementia, uh, um, there's, there's often a a, a slow progression into it, um, or certainly slow, um, you know, c- compared to what I dealt with, which was literally, right. you know, overnight. Um, and so there's, there's some time to sort of get used to the idea or at least maybe even have conversations about it. Right. Right. And prepare for it. For example, um, we, you know, we didn't have a will. We knew we, we, we talked about it. We were a young couple and we, you know, like we probably should have a will. We, you know, so that's the kind of thing. I remember when my mother was dying from pancreatic cancer, um, two years after this plane crash, um, we, we knew it wasn't, she wasn't going to live. And so we had time to get her affairs together and, 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 and with her actually still being able to, make decisions about that as well. 
to a certain degree. So there's just so many things that happen, so many, so many losses, so many um, pieces of your life that are suddenly just blown up and, and you don't, you kind of don't know which way to turn. Yes. I, I, I resonate with that. You know, when I tell people my, my wife was sick for 10 years, they're like, Oh my God, that's so terrible. But in another way, it wasn't terrible because a lot of work happened in that 10 years, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, had, a, you ton, had, yeah. a ton of work um, and a ton of conversation. I, I couldn't have known I was prepared. You can't be prepared, but it turned out I was from all the preparation, uh, you know? Yeah. It, so I resonate with what you're saying that this sort of sudden drop over the cliff Um, You have a lot of work to do to even catch up to what's happening. Yes, you you absolutely do. And circling back to what you were saying before about that, that person becoming a different person. It's, it sounds like your wife was mentally pretty, pretty aware um, for most of that 10 years. But of course, in my case, that, that was not the case. case. And, And in people that, that have strokes or dementia or Alzheimer's or any of that kind of cognitive disability. Um, yeah, they, they, they are different and yet they're the same. Like I, there's mm-hmm. a scene when, when the first time that David speaks after being extubated, he'd been, um, on a, in an induced coma for two weeks, almost two weeks. And, um, you know, when he first said his, the doctor said, what's your name? And he said, you know, said David. And I, it was his voice. And I, I guess I was a little shocked because I, because for all this time when he was in the coma, I didn't know who he was going to be when he woke up. And of course that was just that moment. He, he really was very, very impaired, but, but the voice was the same, you know, and every once in a while he'd say something, some, some joke or, or something that would be like the old David, it would be like, Oh my gosh, he's in there, you know? Um, And then he would say something completely, completely, completely off the mark or or unexpected. And so it's strange. It's, it's like you get these little tastes and, and then, yeah. And then shuts it down again. That's a good moment for you to share the, the part of your book that does kind of capture the difficulty of, um, keeping the kids aware, you know, in a, in a way that doesn't make them carry, carry things unnecessarily um, because he resembled their dad sometimes. So it must've been very hard to compute that certain ways he behaved were not personal, you know, when, when he resembled the, the previous person, could you share that part of the book? Yes, sure. So this, uh, this happened, I, I'd say it about two and a half to three years after the accident. So Joshua was, um, uh, eight or nine, uh, and, uh, very, um, emotional, sensitive kid, um, actually on the spectrum. Um, and, um, as I said before, I would try to keep, uh, their lives as normal as possible. We had friends over, um, and tried to have dinners and, and just hang out together. And so this is one of those times. And, uh, just as a reference, learning services is the facility where he was living. 
Whenever I ask, Learning Services brings David home to San Jose. Sometimes friends join us, especially Karen and Alex, whose children are close to Hannah and Joshi. We sit in the backyard, drink wine, watch the kids on the play structure that David assembled when he could still follow instructions safely. Sometimes Alex takes David inside, ostensibly to play video games, but Karen and I know they're going out front to smoke cigarettes. We shoot hoops or try to play ping pong. David is agitated when he misses the ball and when the kids misbehave, which is frequently. David is particularly impatient with his son. Joshi's repetitive behaviors irritate him. Look, watch me going down the slide, Joshi calls for the 10th or 20th time. He constantly craves adult attention. I don't care, David yells back. Joshi looks stricken. He runs into the house, not wanting the other kids to see the tears streaming down his face. David, you need to be nicer to your son, I admonish, as if it will make a difference. I head after Joshi. He'll be tough to console. I can't remember if David was harder on Joshi than Hannah before the accident. Most fathers do have higher standards for their sons, but David's unfiltered put-downs are devastating. I find him on his bed, face buried in his pillow. Why is daddy so nasty? He whimpers. I sit down next to him and stroke his back. Daddy doesn't mean it that way. Remember what I told you? His brain just doesn't know how to be nice sometimes. Joshy turns over to look at me and sniffles. I wipe some tears from his cheek with my thumb. He really loves you. From the look on Joshy's face, I'm not sure he believes me. I really wanted to talk with you. You know, maybe this is a, a result of having had young kids when uh, my wife was sick and died and, you know, now they're all grown up. But I have this sort of longitudinal view, <laughs> you know, and I was really wondering what you think your kids, I don't know how old they are now, older, um, what have they made of that experience? How do they look at it? Um, you know, what, what, what's that navigation been like, do you think? Um, it's been hard. <laughs> it's been really hard. Um, I think they've both struggled in their own way. Um, I think for my daughter, there's sort of a very, very deep underlying um, fear and anxiety that, that something will happen to me as well. Um, and I think that affects a great deal of what, you know, of who she is now. I think it's, it's a struggle for her to maintain that kind of uh, confidence and um, sense of, um, safety because, mm -hmm. you know, one day her daddy went off to work. It was actually a work, uh, work trip that he was on and, um, never came back really. Yeah. So, um, I think that there, that's kind of like when it, when you, when you, when that's something like that has happened to you at such a young age, I think, how can it not affect you for the rest of your life to just not feel like the ground underneath your feet is stable even, even though I tried to provide that stability as much as I could, you know, um, 
And, you know, for my son, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Um, he, um, you know, being on the spectrum, but very, very, very high functioning. Um, I think he struggles with, you know, he obviously struggles with some social skills, but um, just needs a lot of attention, you know, mm-hmm. from his friends and um, from me. And um, so we'll see either, you know, she's 24, he's 23 now. Um, and um, to be determined, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I find with my own kids, it's, it's gone in, in both directions. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to come to terms with the fact that things can happen at any time, right? That's, it's hard for all of us <laughs> to come to terms with that. But I do also feel as if they're uh, quite intent on living full out. They're the ones that their friends call when they have a hard time. They, they show up. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel all that is also um, more pronounced because of what my family went through. You know, that there's, there's the trauma and there's also some things that they value that I value that came out of it as well. Um, well, I definitely think that it, it, it fosters compassion um, and uh, empathy for others, as you say, going through, going through a crisis, um, even if it's not a crisis of that magnitude, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And also to just circle back to you here, um, you know, we, we, our main job is to make sure our kids live. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the other job is to show them how to navigate adulthood and I think it might be a good message for your your uh, parent, especially a mother, to to say, "I'm going to have a life," you know, even though it's hard to make those choices, and I feel some guilt, and other people judge me, but I'm going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know you've gone on to marry again, and you know, definitely have a life. Um, so I. I imagine that affects them too. What do you think? Oh yeah. I, I think that they, um, they've learned a lot from me. Um, not all, not all good stuff, but, uh, they have learned, <laughs> we all make know, our mistakes, right? <laughs> they, yeah. They even, you know, they've learned about resilience. Um, I've tried to model that for them. And so, yeah, it's the, you know, it's always the yin and yang, the blessing and the curse of, of, but you know, you try, you try to find the silver linings and learn stuff rather than just crawl in a hole and give up. I, I, yeah, I, I like to say I don't like to waste a good crisis. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if it's gonna happen and I can't stop it, I you may know, as well. well. I guess, we'll that's, I guess that's why I wrote about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and I also like to laugh. I didn't know how to laugh before that experience, but now mm. laughter is is my favorite thing. So it's great, so healing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've I've really enjoyed talking about your book, and I highly recommend it. I just think it's so important not to not to just have the same old dutiful messages about caregiving. So thanks a lot for being here. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. 
You can find Rachel Michael Berg at rachelmichaelbergauthor.com. Next week, I'll have Karen Grassley. We'll be talking about her memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust, Reflections on Life, Loss, and Love from Little House's Ma. She was uh, Ma and Little House on the Prairie. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.